everybody. Welcome to another episode of Tales from a Vet Tech with me, Tabitha Kusera. Hopefully all of you had an amazing weekend and I am so excited to share this next interview with you. I sat down and spoke to my best friend, Jessica Benoit, all about one of our favorite topics, cooperative care. Cooperative care is all about empowering animals to be willing participants in their own care. I know you're intrigued, so definitely listen. We're going to talk about benefits of cooperative care, what it is, practical applications of it in the veterinary hospital and at home. Thank you so much, Jessica, for being here. I'm really excited to talk about this topic with you. Both Jess and I are veterinary technicians, but also trainers and cooperative care is something that is close to our heart that we work with a lot of veterinary clinics and shelters to help implement, but also we work with a lot of clients whose animals are struggling to get their medications or even get into the vet to make it where it's a more enjoyable experience and safer for everyone. So thanks so much for being here, Jess. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to discussing this topic. It's one of my favorites. I know I had to have you on. So <laughs> first things first, we're going to just define cooperative care because I, I know that this is a newer concept for a lot of people. So mm -hmm. what is cooperative care, Jess? It's essentially when we have a patient that is comfortable enough whether we're dealing with a husbandry procedure or a veterinary procedure that they're willing to participate. It's not necessarily only about kind of chin rests or stationing. It's about having a patient that wants to cooperate, that wants to be part of the procedure that is comfortable taking food and keeping kind of body language cues in the back of our head and we can recognize that these patients have a low level of fear, anxiety, and stress. And so that's essentially what cooperative care is for and what it is. Right. It's all about basically involving training an animal to not only tolerate, which that's a word with a lot of baggage, uh, yeah. not to only tolerate handling and husbandry procedures, but like Jess said, to be an active willing participant. So it may look like the dog or cat rests their chin and that's them giving us consent that, yes, I am okay with you mm -hmm. touching or approaching or injecting. And when the cat or dog lifts their head, that's them saying no. But also yeah. sometimes it doesn't look exactly like that, especially in the veterinary practice where the things are actually happening, right? I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of getting vaccines as a human. I don't like needles, but I am prepared and my experiences when I was younger and now have made those easier to handle. And I treat myself with a fun coffee afterwards. Um, so these animals, <laughs> like my cat, for example, she licks from a licky mat throughout her, most recently her exam, her blood work and her blood pressure. She's never mm -hmm. done that before. We've worked on making right. that visits less stressful but it just shows you how, how amazing cooperative care is. So what right. are some benefits of cooperative care, which we could talk just about this guy. Oh gosh. Um, I think for the most part, 
the animal feels safer and that's what we really want. We want them to be, feel safe. We want them to feel relaxed. And if they're feeling safe and relaxed, our team members are also likely feeling safe and relaxed, right? We're not going to get a lot of those defensively aggressive behaviors from a patient that has a low level of fear, anxiety, and stress. It gives them also the opportunity, especially if they have been taught a consent behavior like four feet on the mat or resting their chin, an opportunity to either opt in or opt out of what's going on. And then that gives us also an indication of whether or not they're comfortable or not. Um, and then we also know that these patients, often the ones that we see, I think, are being seen for behavior modification. And so they've had previously poor experiences in a veterinary setting, or even with husbandry procedures, maybe at home, nail trims haven't gone <laughs> quite the way we had hoped. And so we are working to change their opinion about doing that. And obviously, if we can do that, then long term, the benefits are that in the veterinary setting, or with that procedure specifically, um, we're going to get more and more comfort, positive association and counter conditioning and all that lovely stuff throughout their life. If we can make things a little bit better for them um, to begin with, or to change their opinion, essentially about it. Right. Every experience they have, if we can improve on it, we can change their emotional state to, I am terrified right. of those nail trimmers. I am terrified right. of those scrubs. Now I don't even walk into the vet clinic because I've generalized that fear to the door mm -hmm. of the vet clinic. Right. You, yep. Things are a little bit better. Like with cupcakes, she wasn't always actively eating throughout her procedure. We still did everything I could control to minimize fear and stress, low, like mm -hmm. carrier training, uh, gentle right. control, all that stuff. But now she actively participates in her care. And right. I think a lot of that happened over time because of the work we did. Because yeah. they don't just get, we all know this guys, but with negative experiences, they don't just get better. They get worse, which is why it's really right. important for us to do everything with every animal we work with to decrease stress and fear. Right. And then, of course, less fear, anxiety, and stress for everyone, which also yeah. reduces the risk of injury, not only to the pet, because unfortunately, I have seen some injuries related uh, to handling. Yeah. That's another yeah. podcast. Yeah, um, that's another podcast. <laughs> But of course, it reduces the risk of injury to staff, bites, scratches, yeah. because animals can react with fear, aggressive behaviors due to pain, fear, all the things that we tend to see in the veterinary clinic. So of course, yeah. we are huge proponents of cooperative care. And as Jess mentioned, we tend to see cases where, where there's already been some associations made that aren't positive. So the dog that literally, if I just pick up the nail trimmers, I start seeing four to five signs of stress in that dog, the mm -hmm. cat that runs the second they see the carrier. So yeah. some pretty uh, severe trauma, right. but you can do this preventatively too. Like Jess teaches husbandry classes. I teach kitten kindergarten and cats learn how to eat out of syringes. We yeah. work on happy nail trims. All dogs get muzzle trained, which we'll talk a little bit more about. But like I said, generally what we're dealing with is there's already trauma there. The client mm -hmm. may have been fired from the vet due to right. nobody being able to handle them. 
And then we yeah. get to create a fun handling plan and work on changing their association from negative to positive. So again, so many benefits to cooperative care. It yeah. provides them with choices as well. And like just said, when we provide them with more choices, it increases their ability not to just cooperate with that nail trim, just worked with that client and that vet with, but they, they'll start to generalize and be like, this whole office might yeah. be better. I can handle this better. Yeah. All that lovely stuff. Yeah. When you have to kind of proceed <laughs> onto other things, like we're having a vaccine appointment or we need a blood collection, all of that stuff does tend to get a little bit easier, even if it wasn't necessarily trained. If we are generalizing, and I think that's something that start button behaviors can be beneficial for, but I also think that's where we sometimes, and I've seen this happen, I guess is why I say it is I've had patients that have a lot of my cooperative care training is done in our practice, which I'm lucky to be able to do, or I'll go to other practices and work with their patients in their facility. And we will sometimes when it turns into real life, we'll see sometimes that the patient goes, Oh, I'm not actually going to do Right. That chin rest right now, or I'm not going to station because things look a little bit different. And sometimes it doesn't matter how hard we try. And I find this actually with nail trims. There's a step in my nail trim plan that has been added in the last probably couple of years because I started seeing it. So we would do the paw handling and then we would introduce the trimmers and then we would introduce handling with the trimmers. But the second that people's head gets close to the, ah, to the actual nail because they have to visualize it. Then the dog goes, oh, this is real life. Right. The, I'm not okay with that. And so having to break down things so specifically and then hoping for that generalization when we have to be so mindful of every single little step and everything that may be causing them stress. Sometimes I'll go back to what I was actually getting to is that they may not generalize those consent behaviors as much as we would hope. And so that's where we'll talk about predictor cues, but that's why both of us love predictor cues right? for the specific reason that sometimes this consent behavior isn't going to happen. Yeah. And I think for anyone who isn't aware of what a start button behavior, yeah. they're essentially just start and stop signals. So of course we know the best way to know an animal's emotional state is to watch their body language. And our body language affects them as well. And it's all about that individual animal. But when it comes to consent training behaviors, that's something like targeting, like their nose or a part of their body. Usually we use their nose, but a part of their body touching a target. Stationing, which is something that I tend to teach a lot and I know Jess does as well, which is you station on the mat. When you come off the mat, that's you saying no. When you are on the mat, that's you saying yes. Or a chin rest where they rest their chin on, it could be your hand or a chair, an item. Again, in many mm -hmm. cases, that chin rest is kind of generalized to various items, just like the target and the stationing. Yeah. But a start button behavior would be basically the dog comes into the room and puts their chin on the chair. So that's yep. the dog telling us, which we've trained, of course, that we need to train these things and it takes a lot of time. And a stop button would be, for example, getting off the station, like I mentioned, or avoidance, or like just mentioned, they're unable to perform that known skill. Mm -hmm. So we've worked on this a yeah. lot at home 
which is very important because anything, you know, me in my house with my friend, I may be a little different than in a different country where I don't speak the language. It makes sense. So like Jess mentioned, sometimes what we see is these husbandry or start button behaviors have been taught, which is awesome, but it wasn't necessarily like maybe generalizing other items haven't been considered like the context cues, yeah. for example, in an animal hospital, like just right. said, when the head goes, the dog's like, uh-uh, this is real. Yep. Right. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about, we basically say as veterinary technicians and trainers, what does cooperative care look like in real life? Because sometimes I think across the board, I think veterinary professionals can maybe misunderstand this and don't think it's helpful from the veterinary professional side. I think the general public doesn't think it's realistic or doesn't understand that this isn't something that happens overnight. It's all about just like learning anything. Consistency is key. And then with trainers, sometimes I'll see that they have taught the behavior, which is great, but they haven't considered we have another tech come near, like the tech can't do this by themselves, or you may not be able to be in the room. Yeah. And, and unfortunately with the pandemic, it's thrown us some curveballs, right? So yeah. And I call it, I call it like the third, I call it the third man in. Yeah. So I can teach my dogs, particularly that are, um, have high levels of fear, anxiety, and stress for veterinary handling. And a lot of our sessions, especially near the point where we are going to start doing the veterinary exam for real in real life, I call it the third man in. And we have sessions where there's literally just the vet standing in the room while I do essentially go through the training with the patient and the owner's present and it's necessary because a lot of these dogs have had previously negative experiences with multiple team members right. coming into the room, right? That means something bad is going to happen. And so that's real life. And that's why when we are trying to teach this and we need this to work kind of long-term for the course of the animal's life and their veterinary care, these little things have to be considered. And so sometimes with these patients too, the ones where they've previously been sedated for a veterinary exam, because those are the ones that we work with often, (laughs) is the goal, although we will still, I think Tabitha the same does similar to me is that I'll still teach these animals um, start button or consent behaviors. I'll still teach a chin rest. I'll still teach all of those things. But what I, my really, my main goal is that you're comfortable. I want you to be happy in the veterinary clinic. And yes, teaching a start button produces um, confidence. I think, I think we get a lot of confidence. We can, we're essentially operantly counter conditioning these animals. So we are changing their opinion by teaching this behavior. But when it's all said and done, if I can just get those patients to use food distraction for their veterinary exam, we've won. Hallelujah. Yeah. But food (laughs) distraction in particular, I find in the veterinary profession, and even with like cooperative care training kind of gets pushed aside or isn't maybe looked at as cooperative care. And I agree. I find that really interesting because I definitely agree. And that's where I love the cooperative 
tech care textbook by Monique Fairchild mm -hmm. and Alicia Howell, their definition is the animal either gives consent by performing a behavior or is easily distracted by food during a veterinary procedure. Right. They're, the definition of cooperative care and consent that they have provided are probably the most realistic one I have seen as someone that, again, as a veterinary technician that I work at low cost vaccine clinics, I work mm -hmm. with, we do our, we do our clients nail trim, of course they're animals, <laughs> they're nail trims yeah. in the yeah. house. But my job as a trainer is like you said, to set that and basically help that client advocate for their pet, of yeah. course. Yeah work with the vet to be more comfortable and prepared in the vet staff. But mm -hmm. ultimately, like you said, for that animal to be comfortable enough to eat off a licky mat. Exactly. They may yeah. freeze for a second when they get right. the injection, but they return right. to baseline within one right. to two seconds. That's really what we want. But Sorry, I, low. Yeah. I, I mean, this is a hot take and me and Jess talk about this a lot, but I feel like cooperative care is glamorized a bit in the mm -hmm. behavior worlds because I think that, like you said, if the dog lifts his chin up or if the dog is eating during his chin rest, right, it's right. not considered cooperative care. And that is just, right. guys, I will that tell makes you, no sense. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And I, because it's still a choice. Yeah. Right. The, that, that patient is still choosing to eat, right? They're still opting in by eating. Sometimes what we do often when we're doing food distraction for, let's say, a vaccine, for example, when all of us team members are together and let's say the vet is going to be giving the injection, I'm holding a licky mat, for right. example, the conversation is, Kate, he's eating. So that is the cue for the vet to start pet pinch poke to kind of begin desensitizing for the injection. And I'm going to talk through the whole, everything that I'm looking at, I'm going to tell them, yep, the dog's still eating, his ears are forward. Yes, he's still comfortable so that the vet knows, yes, I can continue. All of that is cooperation for that patient. That patient is choosing to still cooperate. And then if they stop eating, I say, okay, we're, we're not eating anymore. That's hands off. That still means hands off. A hundred percent. And so it still is a start stop if we want to go that way. Food distraction, I think, can still be a start and stop button behavior. Um, it's just not one that's quote unquote trained, but we will get our patients eating if they're comfortable. Yeah. And I think to define eating, oh, yeah. right? So this is where a, an, like Cupcake, for example, my cat I mentioned who just ate off her licky mat and we did her blood, blood pressure and an exam. Right. Um, and it was beautiful. I will actually probably share the video when this podcast comes out so people can see. And as far as defining what food distraction looks like, I think it's important right. for us to define that because a dog that is tense throughout their body, ears are to the side, they may mm -hmm. have a bit of a whale eye and they're licking from that Kong or taking those treats out of your hands, but very, very quickly that's yeah. not what we mean. We no, mean, no, that's called angry eating. Yeah, we mean <laughs> that that animal has minimal to no signs of stress. Yeah. yeah. And is actively, like just said, choosing to eat off that licky mat. So, for example, right. that that example I actually mentioned earlier with my cat Cupcake, she's eating in the, the licky mat. Her body language is soft. 
Her eyes are almond shaped. Her ears are forward. And we obtained her blood and her blood pressure. So that is cooperative care. But again, I feel like this is something in the vet and behavior world that I don't see. Again, I think it's a a bit glamorized. And Mm -hmm. then when it comes to the actual procedure, the veterinary professionals or the the general public who aren't aware of behavior may disregard cooperative care mm-hmm. because they don't think it's re- kind of like I always say with towel handling, when I hear people talk negatively about towel handling restraints with cats, I'm like, tossing a towel over a cat is not a restraint. It's it. We need to learn the handling technique. Your elbows need to be certain places. We're assessing right, right. the cat. You so just like, cat. yeah, right. Just like Jess said, we don't mean by just feeding, which I'm not saying is wrong necessarily, but what no. we mean by feeding and the animal actively eating is with minimal to no signs of stress at a soft pace. And if they choose to yeah. stop eating, it, they may stop eating when the needle goes into the vein yeah, for a second and tense up for a second. And then they quickly return to baseline yeah. and we get our yeah. four five, six mLs of blood or whatever may be indicated with the butterfly. Right. And that's what we're looking to do. And that's the other thing to consider is so when I teach cooperative care for patients that have high, high fear, anxiety, and stress, those are patients that nobody is placing their hands on um, for veterinary exams. These patients often I will teach um, a consent behavior. So I will teach you their chin rest or stationing generally depending on what, because I'm talking very um, basic veterinary exam. I'm talking like we're doing a full vet exam, probably ending with vaccines. And that's what I'm training for. Right. So even when I have trained this with this patient, we have gotten other staff in to also handle the patient when it's absolutely necessary. As far as training goes to help generalize When we go to give those patients in particular, these are high FAS patients, an injection, I teach owners to, as the injection is going to occur, to start feeding. Even in the chin rest, even in the station, I am not expecting these patients to stay still while we poke them with a needle and then wait till that procedure is done to get their food. You can absolutely do it. I have done it with patients. Um, but I think, think, yeah, I think with the majority of patients in real life, especially the ones that are just so scared of the veterinary clinic and so scared of being handled that it's okay. Like you're still doing cooperative care. You can do your range of motion and you can do your palpations and you can do your oscillating. You can do all of that with your chin rest, waiting for them to give you the go ahead by putting their chin down, stopping what you're doing when their chin comes up. But when we are doing painful procedures like injections, I think it's perfectly fine to start using food distraction. It's actually recommended from me and Jess (laughs) because I'm highly recommending it. I'm not going, I just, it takes a lot of training to get a patient to stay still for an injection And I will, and in my experience, they are more likely to stay still for a subcutaneous injection than an intramuscular injection because they are less painful. Agreed. hundred (laughs) percent. Um, and so, yes, I have done a, a number actually of no restraint subcutaneous vaccines. Um, and 
patients that are comfortable doing that. But I think for the majority of patients, they aren't comfortable doing that. And I don't think we should be expecting that of them. And I don't think it's quote unquote, bad cooperative care training. If you're feeding. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I I think like, Unfortunately, with B and Jess, not that we don't love all of our cases because we do, but we tend to oh, yes. deal with cats and dogs that have had, again, extreme aversive experiences that they felt in the, with medical procedures, with the veterinary hospital. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, mm-hmm. like Jess said, you know, if a dog has been man piled on, which of course we're not doing that anymore in 2022, everyone. No, well, uh, no. I know we got to plant that seed. We're not doing that anymore. But like right? Jess said, when <laughs> when four people walk in, that's a yeah. cue. So I think when I work, because I do cooperative care and victory visits, which victory visits are just essentially kind of cooperative care cases, but basically it's a an animal with a severe version or a history of fear, anxiety, and stress, like high at the veterinary clinic. I will work with the veterinarian to set realistic goals. So that's mm-hmm. the other thing. Like Guys, I love the idea of yes, the cat or dog oh, will God, I love it. stay yeah. on this, will stay yeah. on the station or um give me their paw for their blood work, which I definitely will work on. But you have to realize these animals can't even be safely seen. They haven't had an appropriate in- exam. So they could be, I can't tell you how many cases I've worked where we've worked mm-hmm. with the vets. I'm sure you have these experiences too. Oh, yeah, yeah. For these animals to have the appropriate exams and diagnostics needed. Yep. And in many cases that started with sedation, but then we found things that you guys would not believe in these animals because they were never due to fear and stress and a lot of other contacts, of course. And and it's dangerous. Sometimes these are dangerous patients to handle and somebody's going to get hurt. So I think we need to set realistic goals. And what I mean by that is I'll work with a a vet and a client usually, and we'll talk about pre-visit pharmaceuticals if indicated. Mm -hmm, Of course, I'll talk mm -hmm. to the vet about that. I set realistic goals with the client and with the vet. Like I say, what do we need? And in most cases, Mm -hmm. due to the animal's experiences, we start with sedation. So I'm going to work on, yes, I'll work on blood work and all those other things. But first things first, I need this animal to be seen. Our goal Right. is to have this animal get safely sedated for both the yeah. the client and the so yeah sometimes i don't sometimes i feel like i'm not seeing people set realistic goals mhm and yeah and i also think like this is not a popular opinion among veterinary professionals what i'm going to say and what i do <laughs> yep get ready <laughs> this is not the popular opinion bring it but i will almost always if the client is comfortable, I will almost always teach them to restrain their pet for sedation. So, and a lot of veterinary professionals get their hackles up about that. And I am going to explain a few things. One, the animals are always muzzle trained. Two, the dog, she doesn't muzzle train cats. Not, I don't I just, muzzle train I know, cats. I just wanted to let yeah, everybody no, know. Not the cats. I'm talking about dogs right now. I um, I always muzzle train the dogs. The clients are always present for all of these training sessions. I have a very serious conversation with them about what it looks like to restrain 
how, what happens if things go wrong? So we have all those. And then if they're still comfortable, I will absolutely teach them how to do it. And the reason I do that is because these patients are much more comfortable with their, with their guardians restraining them. With their familiar human. It makes sense. Exactly. And so, and I, and especially, I also have to consider financial restraints for people because if I'm going to spend another 10 sessions trying to generalize restraint to other staff members and then fingers crossed that those staff members are present. (laughs) If the dog ever needs an emergency restraint, it's game over. Like I just, that is a very, very difficult thing to do. And so teaching, I do it. I teach owners to restrain all the time. And at the same time, I teach them to advocate through the whole thing from top to bottom you are allowed to tell a veterinary team member that you need your dog needs a break or your cat needs a break. And I think um, that's all about, and this is why pra- like me and just say, this is what it is in real life, because sometimes we feel it's not necessarily portrayed that way. And people are shamed and lots of other things that obviously mm-hmm. as behavior professionals and just kind humans, uh, we do not recommend <laughs> doing, yeah. um, but I, I can definitely understand that especially in cases where in most of these cases, these are to be sedated and she, by yeah, restraint yeah. just to define that for everyone who might not be familiar are me and Jess's idea of restraint is maybe different than what we would call traditional restraint. So what we were oh, taught. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Just leaving that out there. So yeah, yeah. these not like the client that's like, my dog is fine. And they throw a nylon muzzle on their dog and no, no. the dog no. is like, panting, panting heavily is extremely tense or the cat where the client's over. That's not what we're talking about. To be fair, we, I, you should not be doing that or allowing that um, under any circumstances. So what she means by restraint is it might be a hug. Yeah. It might be a gentle hug. It might be a collar hold. It might be, there's a lot of different restraints. Yeah. And it's not lateral. That's the other thing. It's not, um, I don't teach people to put their dogs on their side unless the dog is going to be trained to willingly go on their side. And that's a whole nother conversation, but it's, it is a hug. Like a lot, often the cue we use predictor cues. Um, and we didn't really talk too much about those, but predictor cues are essentially when you name the exam or you name what you're going to touch next or what the procedure is going to be next. Um, and all of those cues are followed by food. And so it's verbal usually. So I'll say pet, for example, and then I will glide my hand along the dog's back or the cat's back, and then I will feed them a treat. (laughs) And so what ends up happening is the verbal cue plus touch predicts food. And we are easily, we're either, sorry, making a positive conditioned emotional response to the verbal cue and the touch, um, or we're changing emotional responses, depending on what was happening previous. And so predictor cues, for example, for restraint, my clients are taught hold or hug, depends on how they feel, whatever they want to use. And then we restrain. So we put one arm around the dog's neck and usually one under their abdomen. And it's like a tight and we work up to that, right? We're not just grabbing and holding on for dear life. Um, We are, there is a desensitization hierarchy that's made so that the restraint is taught in steps um, until we are doing restraint plus adding a second person that does the other predictor cues, which are pet, 
um, and pinch and poke, essentially. So those are all still taught. Um, it's And the predictor, predictor cues are very helpful because regardless, I think any, I think the majority of veterinary professionals that I transfer care to, and so what that means is I've taught the patient um, and the client, and then we are going to go to their veterinary clinic and we are going to work on teaching maybe a veterinary technician that's interested and then get the veterinarian in there. And we're all kind of doing the same training. If we have these predictor cues taught, it is so beneficial to the patient because things are more predictable, um, hence the name predictor cue. And it's, and if all else fails, this is what I say always in my cooperative care class is if all else fails, your veterinarian can tell your pet what they are going to touch, <laughs> touch it and feed. The abs any human can do it. Yeah, because that's the other thing. Like she mentioned transferring veterinary care we understand that veterinary professionals are not all trainers like us no, and can't exactly they may not understand understandably uh yeah how to do uh counter conditioning desensitization all this stuff i don't expect them to and i think we need to be realistic as trainers right and set these clients and these vets up for success yeah. to transfer care so predictor cues is something that me and jess are obsessed with because yeah. for example i use hands pinch poke and obviously, like just said, we we practice these prior to doing it in the vet environment, but we practice it in our home. We start with a less stressful, of course, environment with less distractions, and we work up to other more distracting mm -hmm. environments. But I remember I told my vet, I was like, hey, friends, can you just say hands pinch poke as you're doing those things? And it warms my heart so much. But the next time I saw her, she said, yeah. I'm actually doing this with all yeah. my patients now. And, and again, I understand that that client might not have taught that to that animal, but you have to realize that oh. that vet in that moment, it's so simple and it's something small that will make a really big yeah. difference. So, and it's valuable. Like it is so valuable. valuable. And I think like our vet, one of our veterinarians does that as well. So now she names, uh, she does a lot of cooperative care with me. And so she names all of her <laughs> exams. So she tells them ear, touches the ear, feeds them, tells them eyes, puts a light in their eyes, feeds them. And she does her exams like that, regardless of whether the animal's been trained to do it or not. And if we could set those up in the beginning, yes, that would right. be awesome. Well, and that's the thing. She'll be doing this with a kitten or a puppy. And in eight years, for example, they've come to see us maybe a couple times a year for eight years, and they understand the drill, right? They're like, oh, this is fun. I know this game. I know this touch game. It's fantastic. And that's what we want. And I think I've taught a number of veterinarians and veterinary staff at this point to transfer care. And I definitely see the benefit to predictor cues. And I see their stress decrease as well, because I think it would be absolutely stressful. Oh, <laughs> to right. Have, like to have a tech and trainer come in and be like, hey, this is what I've spent six months teaching this patient. Now I need you to do it. And if you're not a trainer, that is terrifying. It's terrifying. But the other thing, actually trainers, um, <laughs> that I find beneficial, This, I think this helps people. So when I um, make my plans, 
often I'll videotape a lot of my training sessions. I'll videotape the sessions with the, with the client and the patient. And I send those every single time I see them to the veterinarian. And then they have the opportunity to watch those if they have time. I know not everybody has time, but when we're booked specifically to transfer care, I will send them a video of all the predictor cues, what that looks like for the patient, what their consent behavior might be, so that at least they have that and they can always reference it. If I'm not, I'm not going to be around for every single veterinary exam for the rest of the patient's life, as much as I'd love to be. Um, And so it's good for them to reference it, to go back and be like, oh, right, this is what she does. But that's also why we teach clients. Like I have all of my clients do all of this stuff at home, like regardless of whether we're doing it, we're, we're not, I'm not doing in-home veterinary business. Right. Exactly. Um, but please practice and please have other family members that your animal's comfortable with practicing so we can help generalize it. And then at least when I'm not there, the clients can say, Oh, actually this is what we named this, or they can just remind the veterinarian. I think that's, that's such a, a great tip because I think communication sometimes, uh, can be a bit difficult. And like you said, I'm a trainer and a veterinary professional and I'm behavior is my favorite, but I'll be honest. I can understand why a tech or a vet who isn't familiar with what cooperative care is. And someone comes in and says, my dog doesn't need any restraint. I worked on this. This is this, that can kind of come off. Um, not, it can come off a little ab- abrasive and maybe even a yeah. little elitist. Um, well, and it might even come like it can cause, I think some defensive behavior in people right. because we are essentially, we're not, we're, that's not the intention, but I think it can come across like we can do this better. Right. And that's where like, I look think- like, I don't have to restrain. I don't have to get a towel. I can just feed this dog and I can give it injections and, I don't need your other staff around here to grab the dog. Like that's, I, I and I can definitely, I definitely can see that. Um, and where you would kind of be like, okay. And that's what I think that's where, honestly, I think that's where I hear when I'm out there in the real world at vet conferences and other right. or like shelters, I work with a lot of shelters. And I think that's where some of those underlying comments of fear free is bullshit um, oh yeah. Like gentle control isn't real. Uh, right. cooperative care is stupid. Like, yeah. again, obviously we all know, I don't believe in any of those things, but I'm trying to understand the why, right? Because we all want what's best for animals. And I, th- now that I've been doing this and I'm involved in all the worlds, just like Jess is, I think we're starting to understand a little bit more where mm-hmm. some of those, to be fair, some people are just not into learning. Um, and practicing, yeah. uh, we call it practicing cause we're always improving, but to be fair, yeah. most of us are realistically. Um, so I think communicating and teaching a client, I do that a lot. I teach a client how to communicate. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of out of state things like consults and I may not be able to be there with their vet. So I'm right. going to send the vet just a a quick one page of what I did. If they want to talk more, I'm going to leave that invitation opened. But I'm also going to tell that client, just like you do, how to advocate for their animal, but also how to describe and reach out to vets so they find mm-hmm. a good fit and that they're kind yes. and all that stuff. And like you said, transferring care, I think, because I know we've been talking for a while and I will definitely, Jess is like my best friend. So she'll be on a lot. Yeah. 
Uh, we have lots Sorry. of things to chat about. Um, you hear more rants from me. Yay, just rants. Yeah. Um, but to kind of conclude, obviously, we love cooperative care. We talked a little bit about what it is, why we think it's important. Ideally, we should like be teaching cooperative care as a foundation behavior. I much rather a puppy or a kitten learn cooperative care than a sit, y'all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Preach. Um, yep. <laughs> uh, cause it's way more practical it's and lots so, of, other, yeah, lots yeah. of other, it's reasons. much more practical, but in order to transfer the care, which is that that's where us as trainers and veterinary professionals see the, maybe we see the lack of communication or just a little bit of misunderstanding, transferring that part. So yeah. we think some, some great goals as a trainer or a client or whoever to set your vet up for success and your client for success to transfer care is predictor cues. We love them. They're simple. Anyone can use them, which is very practical. And again, they're actively already talking to the client. So it doesn't take additional work, which we have to be honest. That's something I want to have less pushback. So I'm going to address all their pushback before they can bring it up. Um, But that's one of the biggest pushes we get about fear-free just generally. Right. Just say, and I'll generally just, it just takes too much time. It doesn't. And there's a lot less time. It's just, you have data now that proves it takes less time. Um, I actually have a video. I'm going to do a side note for a second. I have a video top to bottom of a veterinarian doing a cooperative care exam with a patient that was taught a station behavior with predictor cues from start to finish full exam was 15 minutes. Well, this is something like we with him stopping yeah. and having a conversation like between handling, um, like the full thing took 15 minutes. Cause like when on you a stop healthy and take dog. breaks, even if it's five seconds yeah. yeah, versus pushing through, we all know that animal's yeah. going to go over threshold and good yeah. luck. Um, yeah. so he would jump down. We'd wait for him to get up. But meanwhile, the veterinarian's still discussing what he's feeling and what what things are what he's looking at and I went after I looked back I was like 15 minutes like there's just no way that we can argue with that no I definitely agree so I think to help set up clients and vets for success we're gonna use predictor cues we're Mm -hmm. gonna set realistic goals so for example I might teach this, I might, this client may reach out to me as a trainer. I'm not, let's mm-hmm. say you're not a veterinary professional and you're going, they may say, I want to cut their dog's nails. That's one thing, right? That's a little different. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's say they want their dog to get, they may not even know, right. They may just say, I want my dog to go to the vet and not know what that, that looks like. So that's right. Where you have to consult with the vet and say, Hey, I'm here to help. And I understand you're not always met with positivity, but we have to continue to build relationships and be kind, mm-hmm. even though sometimes I'm sure you aren't met with that, but that's not a reason for us to not, we, we have to try and continue and yeah. plant those seeds. Yeah. Um, yeah. and then again, set those realistic goals. Like I tell clients all the time, we are working on, we're going to do an exam today and a vaccine based on how we're doing. We may do blood work right. based on that. We may do nail trim. Now, right. these are animals right. that we're literally fired from clinics. Yeah. So they were yeah. non-touchable. Like it was not yes. safe for anybody. Yeah. yeah. 
So setting realistic goals and communicating that to not just the client, but the veterinary team. Yeah. Oh yeah. I just had that conversation two days ago. I, I was in a practice, a veterinary practice, not mine with their patient. And the conversation was, do you have an or- oral Bordetella vaccine? <laughs> Cause if not, I can bring you one. Right. Um, and can we separate this patient's vaccines? Love it. Because I know this patient very, very well. And I know she needs, if we give her one vaccine, we're not going to give a second in the same appointment. It's just not going to work for her. Realistic goals, y'all. Right. Setting up everyone for success. Break it up. And that's okay to ask. Like, I think, I think because we are veterinary technicians, that comes off very easily for us, right? No, like, I, I understand agree. vaccine I... theories. I understand how this works. I know that if a veterinarian has examined the patient next week, I can vaccinate it. Like in our practice right. in, in Alberta, that's allowed. Like uh, veterinary technologists can vaccinate as long as the patient's healthy. And so it's possible, right? It's something that we need to talk about with those vets and make sure that it's a good fit and that it's something that they're comfortable doing. And then the last two things would be gradual exposure to Mm. equipment and people. So I know it's silly, but I consider people equipment in these contexts because for example, (laughs) like Jess said, both of us are going to teach the consent behavior, whatever it may be in low distraction environments. Right. And then like any behavior, we're going to gradually increase the distractions and criteria. Right. So right. For example, I might have, literally I do what just does where I I've worked with the animal. I I asked the technician, but ahead of time or the vet, I want you to come in and go to the corner and not talk. And it's again, we're being, and I talk about considerate approach and usually the staff's educated on this, but if they're not, we work together and then I might have them sit in a chair next to the dog. And then I'm doing the consent cues, right? That's how I do it. I think it's, it's, and some of you may feel like for, if you're, a shelter employee or even a vet tech that you're like, this will take forever. The good news is yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's all about breaking it down into small steps so we can reach that goal behavior. And if those, some of those, right. st- like if there were three steps missing out of my staircase, I would fucking fall y'all. Um, yeah. so I think it's really important. We might go up those, like with some, I'm sure Jess has the same thing with some of our patients, we yeah. get to the fifth step in the first session, but it's not about that it's about not a race. Yeah, yeah. It's not a race. And then lastly, muzzle training for all dogs. Yes. I'll let just talk a little bit more about, and by muzzle training, we utilize basket muzzles. So not nylon muzzles. No. And basically what happens is like my dog's muzzle trained. Is she aggressive? No, but can she be aggressive? Yes. If I got hit by a car, it's never going to happen. Let's be positive. But, <laughs> and I was in severe pain. I would bite, scream. I totally yeah. get it. Or yeah. if I was terrified, guys, I would totally result in aggression, behavior, aggressive behavior. But you wouldn't then label, well, maybe. Uh, but in most cases, <laughs> you wouldn't label ta- like me. You wouldn't be like, Tabitha's aggressive. But no. we see that happen with, with dogs a lot and cats yeah. for that matter. Yes. So I think. Well, it's contextual, right? Yeah. Like teaching cats tell restraint. So I teach the way I muzzle train all dogs is how I would basically with cats, I teach towel restraint so that where right. a towel is a positive. Cause I've seen guys, I've seen some cases where I'm sure people meant well, but I just hold up a towel and the cat exhibits mm-hmm. 
signs of fear yeah. and stress indicating yeah. to me that's data saying somebody oh, yeah. meant well, but they weren't familiar with technique and maybe didn't address some other things. Um, right. or like the dog again, the we're they're in the corner. We go in the corner, which we do not recommend because that's dangerous for everybody. And then we toss a nylon muzzle on them. And then, right. you know, so we, even the safety tools we have as animal professionals, we poison essentially, we, we right. make them negative. And that, yeah. that makes me and Justice's job a lot harder. <laughs> uh, so let's not yeah. do that. Yeah. That's literally one of like this, I, that's a common sentence that comes out when I present is, can you please be mindful of how you, and when you use your muzzles? Because when I see these patients that can't be handled and then they've been muzzled to desensitize and counter condition an animal that has had a negative experience to a muzzle when they need these for everybody's safety, including their own, is very, very difficult. I actually had a case that had such a severe experience, such a traumatic experience with a muzzle um, and a nail trim of all things. And don't get me on that soapbox. Um, and the dog, I couldn't actually counter condition the dog to the muzzle. It didn't matter how slowly we did it. And so we ended up teaching that dog to place uh, her head into a cone cult. Right. From an empathetic standpoint, though, yeah. I think like just like I say, handling's a skill. And I don't think the animal world as a whole, y'all, uh, treats it as a skill. No. Um, no. And I think. For example, a towel, a basket muzzle, a plastic e-collar, right. Elizabethan collar. El Elizabethan collar. Yeah, Let's I have to clarify that. Yes. Not um, a shop collar. Um, those are tools, dude. And yeah. I've worked, it's been it's been interesting because I I I've worked with like humane officers and lots of awesome animal professionals. And many of us are given these tools and not taught how to use them. Mm -hmm. which again, that's not something I would have thought about my first few years as a tech, I would have said it was me and I'm mm -hmm. not shifting blame or anything. It's just, no, I can't give a humane officer, uh, a rabies pull, for example, which those are things that we're not using in vet offices. Mm -hmm. Ideally mm -hmm. we shouldn't be, um, but no. a humane officer, that's a completely different thing. And they were never taught how to appropriately use that. Right. And then we right. throw them into a really difficult situation and we say, go. Yeah. Guys, it's not, or the muzzle, same thing with them. Like, I know, I know if you've never, I've never, guys, I didn't use basket muzzles until I got into behavior. I'm just being honest. No, me neither. We used nylon muzzles and I wasn't taught how to utilize the tool properly. So again, I think from an empathetic standpoint, if we're going to oh, yeah. think that's why we see such aversions to these tools in animals, because we aren't taught how to use those tools. So again, just some that and we're also thinking. not taught body language well right <laughs> and then we're like the animal's fearful right away and right. we're like they had a lot of signs we're not gonna do this regardless that is not the sentence that should ever enter our brains as veterinary professionals as this hat nothing no i'm gonna say nothing i'm not gonna say nothing i'm gonna say very few things are so emergent that you completely ignore the animal's body language cues and then just get it done that's my least favorite. Well, I, I hear that a lot less, which is great. And I think even yeah. in an emergency, because I speak with a lot of amazing emergency veterinarians and technicians, oh, yeah. I yeah, think I love these them. things are crucial because again, if my dog's muzzle trained, 
Right. Like Jess said, let's say the, the veterinary staff is completely unaware of behavior because again, it's not something we're taught guys like be kind. Um, I think they are much more now. So it's let's getting say like, better. That is getting better. Yes. It's getting better, but we're speaking from our experiences. So yeah. But if the dog has a basket muzzle on, even though, even if they're loose and goosey, whatever their body language is, that veterinary staff already feels safer. So they're going to be less likely, which obviously I don't recommend, but I'm just saying they may not be aware that there are better ways. They may be doing the best with what they can in that moment. They're going to be less likely to use force or over restraint, like for people sitting on a dog, things like that. So from a client perspective or anybody for that matter, like it's muzzle training for all, just like my, you know, I'm sure when I don't have kids, but Jess's kids, when they were the age that needed it, yeah. probably had car seats in the back of the they car. They sure did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did place my children in car seats for their safety. And I've seen car seats <laughs> used inappropriately, right? Like, oh, so have I. They're yeah. complicated. Guys, I'm not a mom. Oh, I've seen some. They are complicated. They do not set you yeah. guys up for success. They are so complicated. Um, so just, and I heavy. mean, I think that those are just some notes to consider. So, yeah. In, final. Cause I know we, we went on a bit, but this is what happens when I talk to Jess. Um, yeah, I was like, I think we are way over time, yes. but we're just going to keep going. Cooperative care for all right. Definitely. Yes. Preventatively is preventatively is even better. Yeah. There's some helpful tips to transfer care and make it more easily transferable is predictor cues, muzzle training for all setting realistic goals for all parties, including the animal, (laughs) uh, like you may feel, yes. Um, and then gradual exposure. So starting the animal at a place where they're having minimal to no signs of stress and gradually increasing the distractions and criteria as they are getting more comfortable, basically we're going to start like, if they're afraid of like, for example, if they're sensitive, yeah, if they're afraid of an otoscope, thank you. If they're afraid of an otoscope, I'm not going to start my fake exam with ear. an otoscope. Yeah. 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 I'm also not going to start with it in their ear. Like right. we would heart hold it like whatever. I'll talk in inches, like 24 inches away and then slowly decrease from there. I have so no we're idea breaking. The yeah. Or we might even start with it. Through. Like for this exam, we're not going to use one. Right. Because it's going to put the animal over threshold. That's like the last thing you do. You Again, go, just like not. Yeah. We don't even get there. We talk, we talk about touching ears. Yeah. Yes. So thank you so much, Jess, for being here. Me and Jess actually will. Thanks for having me. (laughs) We are working on a cooperative care webinar series right now, because as you can tell, this was only the surface and we went over a bit. Um, But to end, I like to ask all my guests what makes them happy. This can be veterinary behavior related, or it could just be like, for example, I yeah, (laughs) this could be like seeing your dog smile or like that pasta you had last night or whatever. Um, Probably the first thing I would say off the top of my head are my chickens. Oh, they're pretty great. You guys, they're pretty great. Because I do have a flock of chickens. I have 12 chickens. I have uh, 11 hens and a rooster and I love them. And we do cooperative care training actually as well on my chickens. That's a whole nother podcast. Cooperative let's care. About, let's talk about chicken enrichment. Oh, don't worry. We will. Oh my God. <laughs> I love chicken. So that, and I also love to read. 
And when I say that, I'm not talking about uh, behavior textbooks because I've read enough behavior textbooks. What's like one of your favorite books? The Great Alone by Kristen Hanna. Ooh, I haven't heard of it. I'll check it out. It's so good. So I read a lot of fiction, a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, So that's probably those are the things that make me happy. Well, thank you so much for being here, Jess. Thanks for having me. Keep an eye out on our awesome cooperative care webinar. It'll be great. We will talk to you guys soon. Yes. I know everyone wants to learn more about cooperative care after hearing about how amazing it is. So I'll be sharing some resources in the show notes, including Cooperative Veterinary Care, the amazing textbook by Monique Fairchild and Alicia Howell, as well as Jessica shares tons of great videos and other resources on her training website, Companion Animal Training. You can find them on Instagram and Facebook, and you can find a lot of awesome cooperative care training videos and information on my behavior business's social media, Chirps and Chatter on Facebook and Instagram, and definitely keep an eye out. Me and Jess have already done some fun cooperative care events from teaching you how to get started to once you get started, how to apply that in different settings, like not just in the home, but also in the veterinarian setting. So be sure to keep an eye out for those events. And I will definitely be sharing those with people as they come up. Thank you guys so much for listening. And I hope you have an amazing week.